Hi, and welcome to another Market Voice podcast. I'm Jeff Reeves. The FIA European Principal Traders Association, or FIA EPTA, has bid farewell to its chairman and co-founder, Mark Spanbrook. Mark recently announced his retirement after five consecutive years as chairman of EPTA and 12 years on its executive committee. Over his impressive 37-year career, Mark has played an instrumental role in European market infrastructure, championing competition and the development of clearing interoperability in our markets. Journalist Jeremy Grant, formerly of the Financial Times, recently moderated a fireside chat with Mark Spanbrook at FIA's IDX conference in London. Among other things, they discussed how Mark got started in the financial industry, the big things he has accomplished, and the guiding principles that made him one of the most trusted and respected figures in European derivatives markets. Here's Jeremy Grant and his unabridged interview with Mark Spanbrook. To my left is Mark Spanbrook, who I think most of you will know um, as one of the most prominent advocates for trading and market infrastructure, reform, regulation, I mean, all the good stuff, really. And why am I sitting here uh, talking to Mark? Um, well, uh, Mark and I were talking about this, and we're going to do a little fireside chat. It's 30 minutes, so we're going to rattle through it fairly quickly. It's not that I'm as long in the tooth as Mark, because he's been in the business 37 years, and that is an enormously uh, long achievement. Uh, but the interesting thing is that we discovered that our careers more or less overlap in terms of the transition from open outcry trading to electronic trading, more or less. And this makes it all the more exciting for me to have this conversation with Mark because Mark was, saw this firsthand at the start of his career and through the middle and towards the end of his career. So um, the purpose of this conversation is to just, you know, really have a, a wonderful conversation with you about your career and who you are, how you started this, and we'd like to also try and tease out the impact that Mark has had in the industry, which many of you will be familiar with. So, and there are some other interesting things about Mark, including his enthusiasm for um, racing cars and gardening, which we can get into. Uh, quite an interesting mixture of things. Anyway, so if we could um, perhaps start with um, 1984. Yeah, it really was that long time ago. Um, and you were basically, I guess, a student in many ways. Uh, you were a student, but you weren't just studying. You were looking at the markets already. Can you tell us a little bit where, about where you were and what you were doing? And can we have, and this, this slide that you will see is very relevant here. Uh, sure, thanks. Uh, hi, everyone. This, this was basically work done on the train when I was bored traveling to my high school in, in Amsterdam. I was just bored traveling 45 minutes. So I started plotting down the numbers from um, the, 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 the paper in, uh, in Holland. I started doing this in 82. This is a sheet from 84. You can see it has ex-dividend on there, which are marked. And it basically is the basis for looking at the numbers. So these are closing prices from the Amsterdam Stock Exchange further down to Wall Street numbers down, effects rates down. And for me, this was like, the start of the numbers game. Ultimately, I looked at the changes in the prices. So it didn't matter whether it was an uptrend or a downtrend, but I looked at the relative changes of the prices, which I found out one later calls volatility, and I became an options trader and was pretty savvy in 
trading pure implied volatility. So just, you were what, 21 at this point? 84, I was 20, 20, 19, 20. So not that, around about the same age as your son, Nils, if I get that right, who's, I think, in the audience. So he's 25 now. So he's, so not a little bit younger than yep. Nils. I mean, look, just everybody, if you could just look at the incredible neatness of the handwriting here. <laughs> Nobody does this anymore. Um, it's, it's an astonishing document. I hope that you have it framed somewhere because it is actually, nope. it's also a thing of beauty. Um, there's something sort of Turing-esque and wonderful about it. It's, it's lovely. It's, uh, it's How in many a box in the ethic uh, upstairs. So um, I've, I've got loads of sheets of them. But the fun part is that we now call it AI, but we started looking at this uh, professionally in the 90s uh, through neural networks, just the changes and start plotting them down. Yeah. I, I used CQG, I used all these kind of tools later on, point of figure charts in the crowd. Um, and we now are in AI and we still haven't worked it out, the predictability of these numbers. So you said you were bored traveling to your college every day. Yeah. What were you studying? Business administration. Then you would be Accountant. bored. You would be bored, yeah. I can understand <laughs> that, yeah. And so that was your first taste of the markets, right? Yeah. Were you doing any trading at all at that point? Yeah. You were already? I had a, I had a Rabo bank account. Um, That's what the picture refers to. Rabo called a investor's game. So you get allocated, I think it was a million uh, guilders in those days. Um, and you could trade by phone. So we all know that, that not the dialing, but the, the button phones. You can give in your orders. And Hoogovens is on here. That's a steel company uh, later on acquired by British Steel. And I started to buy and sell out of the monies. And that gave me enormous leverage in my performance. And I outfitted, I think, 100,000 participants. I, I ended up in the top 15, pure luck. How much money did you make? And no clue. But, no clue? But gazillions. All I did was so it was trade out of the money options. It was notional. Hmm. Yeah, okay. But you, you could have made, if you translated it into real money, you could have, you were doing Yeah, it was well. paper money, so it's... Okay. So then, 1984, I think, you then uh, became a trainee trader. Yeah. At the Options and Stock Exchange in Amsterdam for Paribas. Is that right? Yep. Mm -hmm. How did you get that job? Through someone who was in, uh, I think, the asset manager side. Um, so I, I drew up the, uh, the accounts in the, uh, the Dutch Antilles, and as soon as I'd done that, Every morning at the 11, I could join the trading desk. Right. And there were guys in arbitrage, currencies, golds, and options. Um, so I could just pick a desk and join them. And yeah, worked weekends even, just for fun. It was, for me, it was like a wonderful world. I wasn't bored. Right. Not bored then. Good. So you'll see that this second slide has popped up, which is... Not, we'll deal with this in a minute because we're going to deal with something chronologically a little bit before this, but um, this, gives, this slide gives you a flavor of what Mark then became in 1988, but we'll come to that in a minute. So you joined, you then joined ABN AMRO, right? Is that right? AMRO, it was called. A AMRO, oh, let's get that yep. right. And you were doing a sort of similar, you, you, that was your, again, sort of like government bonds. Yeah, I, I called um, HR at Emerald Bank. He just got through basically the Yellow Pages book, called him and said, I'm applying for a job. Oh, good. What's your name? What job? 
treasury and well, put you through. And got an interview there with the, I think the director. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I just want to trade just for the bank and not for clients. And he looked at me like, what do you mean clients? We only have clients, he said, but you must run a book. And the government bond desk was running a book. So I got tested, uh, two days of medical, mathematical testing, and I ended up at a high score. And they said, you're not going to do the bonds. You're going to be in currencies, which I hated. <laughs> and Why? That's, Why did you hate it? It's too complicated. Can, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen. Let's look at this. If we, go, if we were to go back to the first slide, I'm not asking that we go back to the first slide. Talk about complicated. And you, you thought it was FX was too complicated. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, so, but in your career, um, and I've, I've had much of luck, and this was the first point of luck. Unfortunately, someone turned sick on the bomb desk the same day I was on the currency desk. And they said, sorry, do you mind going over there? Like, I knew everything. I could only answer the phone. I said, sure, I moved to the bond desk, and that's where I stayed, ultimately. So I never actually stayed that long on the currency desk. I moved to the uh, government bonds. So you said something interesting a minute ago. You said you wanted to trade on the bank's own account, yeah. not for clients, which is a very, very interesting early sign of prop trading yeah. instinct. Right. Why did, you, why did you think that? Why did you distraction, want to... complete distraction. Look, you have, you have a position, and you can think as an owner of that position, but to think for someone else for that position, I could never do. I was certainly conflicted um, if I would take a position on my own account, say I buy uh, Philips shares, and we had to trade Philips volatility. I mean, it didn't work in my mind. I couldn't do that. So it was very egocentric, very selfish. You work with the capital of the company, and that's what you put at stake. And that's what you're there for, to supply liquidity only. Which actually, if you think, if you fast forward to your time, we'll come to this in a minute, at Getco, that's precisely what these firms do. Yeah. They're trading on, not for clients. Right. I mean, who knew that you actually would end up doing that in a very major way later on? But we'll come to that later. How in, that's very interesting. So 1987, um, as those of you who were around at the time and remember, we had the crash. What was that like? I would say, business-wise, the, absolutely the biggest disaster in my whole trading career. What you, what you then saw around you, the casualties, uh, piles and piles of tickets. We were behind for days in execution on the floor. So we as market makers were helping out floor brokers. Um, the whole system just collapsed. Frightening, absolutely frightening. And as a bond trader, I mean, you just make a lot of money because you have inventory and the prices would go up. Um, so I was on the lucky side and we made up the losses for the, um, for the equity for the stock traders. But I, I'm, again, just very fortunate and I've seen it so early in my career. Um, what did it, what, two questions. Did it put you off the markets? Because you might think that people looking at this would go, that's it. This is a disaster. It's fundamentally flawed. I'm out of here. And what were the lessons? Uh, the lessons are certainly that we should better the system. And I'm not the guy who walks away from something. So I was determined then to improve the system, as in go electronic or better the, the clearing and, and margining. The fact that the FCMs couldn't handle that volume 
um, was a shock. I mean, literally, we had printers running, so printers can't print more than they actually can do. So we, we put another printer in and another printer, but they couldn't handle it. So we had to think differently and start digitalizing. Um, that, was, that was probably the start of thinking, how can we improve this um, on an ongoing basis? Right. That's, that's what we still, as an association, do today. Okay, so then 88 to 92, you then yep. you moved to the UK. You got a job at Life, trading index and stock, auction, op, stock options with Van der Moulen. And this, we go to the second slide, if we may, back to the second slide, if we can, the British Steel slide. There we are. So, this is you on Life, correct? Yeah, Life. I think at this moment we need to get in character, Mark. Sure, but... we can do that. <laughs> So we have here, fortunately, Mark has, Mark today is exhibiting on the catwalk his original trading jacket. I don't think it's necessarily from that picture, but it's from, where is the trading jacket, Mark? Where is this from? Uh, this is probably the one we got in uh, the early 90s. Early 90s, so that would be your, it says LME on the back. No, it doesn't say LME. So something like that. It's a company initial. Ah, Van der Moulen? Yeah. Aha. It's not London Metal Exchange. No, don't worry. Wow, look at, the, look at that. Round of applause, please. Round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> it's in pretty good nick, actually. And you even have some paper tickets. So I, all I can offer is this Chicago Board of Trade. Um, jacket, which I was given when I finished my stint in Chicago as the Financial Times guy covering the Board of Trade and the Merck. And I, I thank, uh, she's probably not here, but Maria Gemsky, who some of you may remember, gave me this as a, as a fun leaving gift. So we thought we'd just get in character for this next stage of the conversation about open outcry trading and then also the transition from open outcry trading. So, um, so then, so you said in, and I noticed this from a LinkedIn post, when we were, when this event was being mm -hmm. promoted, and you made a comment, open outcry pits were never going to change to electronic platforms. Ha ha. Let alone would we ever use algorithms, we thought. As a 24-year-old trading British steel options, look at the picture, there he is, it was just living the moment. So you, what changed? Because you, you, you obviously thought this is gonna be here forever, and certainly the guys who were at the Board of Trade, I remember I would talk to them and they would say, and this is the time when Eurex was trying to beat down, for, uh, beat a path to Fortress Chicago. They were all saying, it won't work, electronic trading won't work. What changed in your head? I think growth. This was a pit on the day of the IPO, uh, when the shares started to trade, we started to trade a little later in the options. And it was, I think this was a crowd of about 300 people and it would die out the next few days. It was half and then sized down to about 30. Um, but the fact that it was limited in the number of people who could actually do the trading there. Brokers had trouble to get in. And we all had our seats. Uh, they were limited and they would go up, obviously, if more people wanted to trade. So we need to, yeah, we need to grow the pie. And how do you grow the pie? Obviously not by getting into a bigger building. Um, so we had to think differently, and that's where the early days of electronic trading started. 
in futures after the market, the regular floor traded markets close, we could trade the futures on the screen already uh, somewhere in the 90s. And obviously Eurex, then called DTB, had started. So you could see the movement away from these floors. And the floors were very efficient. It was chaotic maybe for outsiders, but for us it was very, very organized um, and, and efficient. So it's hard to believe that there was a better world, but certainly there was because we had to grow the pie. And did you, you mentioned DTP, which is Deutsche Terminbörse, if I'm not wrong. And was that the sort of the earliest sign for you? Um, Electronic trading kind of work. To be honest, when I signed up and did the exam, I think it was in 89 for um, DTB, I thought, this is not going to last long. <laughs> we, we'll do this and I'll fly to Frankfurt and, and sit in a boring office and do, um, do the exam and go back. And ultimately, I think somewhere in the 90s, this got the momentum and they made very big tech changes. Um, in order to grow the pie again, yeah. grow that pie. So then 92 to 98, 99 rather, you were head of your derivatives, Van der Moelen. Then 99 to 2002, that important year I mentioned earlier on, Van der Moelen. Then, then you moved to the US and ran the floor at the Philly SIBO for Eurex. So you, you moved to the US then, 2002, I guess, roughly. Let's move to the third section, if you like, of your yep. career, which is Gecko. Yep. This whole conversion to electronic trading and ultimately, you know, trying to get exchanges up to speed on technology because it was the exchanges who were actually behind many of them. Um, you joined Gecko, you left the floor and started a whole different career, basically, in algo trading, effectively. So maybe we can have slide number three. Now, there's, there's Mark. Just tell us about this photo. Who, who's in this photo apart from you and where are you? Uh, this is one of the founding partners I'm with on the day. Um of the IPO in... Um, think Knight. That, that was KCG. KCG. Yeah. Um, we acquired Knight in 2012 after the debacle they had in the morning. Somewhere in August 2012, we bailed them out um, and, and listed the firm. But my history with Gecko is way before that. I mean, yep. 2002, uh, we had one person on the floor and the rest were literally laying backwards in an office with screens up to the ceiling. Very small office. And where was this? Chicago. Chicago. And um, we started to expand the business in FX, in uh, commodities, and in treasuries. And we became one of the largest algorithmic trading firms back then. We traded 18% of the uh, northern US equity volume every single day, NASDAQ, New York. And the company is so different that we closed everything after three months. So it's kind of, you pay bonuses after three months, every tech project, if it wouldn't, if it would take longer than three months, uh, we wouldn't do it. Um, so every three months we had a bonus talk and we got calls from Archipelago and all those places. Um, what's happening? And because our traders were in the room, we're discussing bonuses, so we just pulled them out of the market. So it was noticeable that we were in there. Um, so yeah, these things you laugh about, but it, it was noticeable if you, if you take 18% of the uh, liquidity out. Uh. What's interesting is that 2002, three, when you were, this period you're describing, I was in Chicago. Yeah. I had no idea of the existence of Getco at Good. that time. Good. Which is how these guys wanted, they wanted, they were super secret as we all now know, 
And it took them about, took them till about 2008-9 to come out of the shadows, if I can put it like that. But it's a testament to, to that, that they, they were, I mean, I, you know, I thought I was all over this story, but I didn't even know the, about the existence of Gecko. So it, you were doing this very quietly, I would say. Not only you, but probably some of the other guys like Optiver. We weren't that quiet. I think all the exchanges, even in this room, knew exactly who we are and what we did. And, and in the development, technology the development, we were we were moving from seconds to milliseconds yeah. in those days. And to, yeah, in those days. So they knew exactly what we um, what we were doing. Um, the SEC didn't know. We had two we had two entities that's com interesting. combined. That's interesting. They were the SEC didn't know. No. So uh, I literally said, I'd rather go to Washington uh, myself and knock on their door instead of them knocking on our door. And once. so did you? Yeah, we did. Yeah, and yeah. What, what was the reaction when you said, Hi, hey guys, we're doing this stuff? Yeah, they were, they were overwhelmed. Absolutely overwhelmed. <laughs> did they have we, any... We had two different entities. You have a broker-dealer entity and a non-broker-dealer entity. Um, but just be open about what you do. And that's, I think, what I learned back then, we still use it today, keep explaining what this business is about. It's not about you, but it's about the business on itself. And if you want to change, uh, whether it was from my numbers to AI or from, from uh, milliseconds to, to micros to nanoseconds now, keep explaining what you do. These guys on the other side, take care of our regulation, but if they're not being told what we do, how can they find the right regulation? So it's a challenge we have today still. Before we get to the founding of the EPTA and that very important point which you mentioned, and I think it's fair to say this is an absolutely crucial part of Mark's career, which is his role in, work, in, in, in interfacing with regulators on this stuff. You, you had a quick story that you might want to tell about finding Deutsche Börse's data center. Please tell the audience about that. It's about transparency, and um, for those of you who are familiar with Germany, you have the local regulator. Um, so in the state of Hessen, uh, we have the regulator. So we went over to see them, and we asked, can you please uh, make public where the data center is for Eurex um, and Zetron, so for Deutsche Börse? And they said, no, we're not going to do it. And we're like, why would you not do this? Well, it's simply it's out of our mandate or all kinds of excuses. So we pushed and pushed. So Andreas Preuss on the line, nope, we're not going to do it. And my colleague Mark um, here in, in London, where we work from, um, is also named Mark, I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to jump on the flights. We're just going to find it. <laughs> so we booked a flight to Frankfurt. Um, I think it was an afternoon flight, which was unusual for us. We would fly early morning. Uh, to save costs for an hotel. But we booked five data centers. And the first data center we got to was that afternoon. And the others we're going to do the next day. So again, knocking on someone's door. We showed up at IX Europe. And I still speak to the guy who worked there. And he said, yeah, I can, I can show you around. And we, we had an idea that Yahoo was there. And if Yahoo was there in those days, it was, it was fab. It was fantastic. But we, we walked around and nothing was in cages like it's now today. So we walked around and he said, yeah, there's this company in the back of the room. They do something. I have no clue what they do. So we were like, sure, let's walk over there. <laughs> <laughs> so we walked over there 
and literally all these wires, and we looked at the cage in the, at, at, the, um, at the racks, and all of a sudden, I saw on one of the wires DBS, Deutsche Burs Assistance. So from that moment on at GetCo, we used our own wires and no names on wires. But the fact of the matter is, this is about transparency. We booked two, two computer racks there. I went over to Preuss, I said, this is where your site is. We haven't found the backup site yet, but please make it public. Went to the host, the, the surveillance from the exchange again. They made it public. It's all about transparency and don't be shy about it because this will better the system. And it, I think ultimately it meant a lot for Eurex that they became public on this. Yeah, great. Let's move forward because we're starting to, to time is flashing at us. Now, 2011, you um, decided to spend a bit more time at home, very much tied up with your personal life and circumstances at the time. Tell us a little bit about that. And you know, you also had um, step back from get-go day-to-day responsibility, and then the EPTA came into play. Just quickly walk us through that. Yes, Gecko, we did a lot of regulatory affairs, so advocacy work, explaining who we are and what we do. Um, and I wasn't going to travel more than five days a week, so for me, that was it. I stayed a partner, and, and they continued their business. Um, and then we had this idea with a bunch of traders um, to become a voice. And Don Wilson beat us, uh, luckily enough, in the US. We're setting up the PTG, Prop Traders Group. Uh, we did it six months later, exactly this month, 12 years ago. We started with 22 independent market-making firms, all trading for their own capital, non-banks, um, for their own risk, and um, proud to be here still 12 years later with a great team who I leave behind, sadly enough. Um, and one of the striking um, decisions was back in 2012 to sign up under the FIA. Um, so Marianne Burns, John Damgard were there. It was a very quick conversation, we all agreed. And the rest with, um, with Walt and Jackie is, is history. Um, it's been tremendous to be under the FIA label for us. Totally independent, we have our own Exco team. Um, very fortunate to, uh, to have decided it that way back then. And you make a great point of talking about the importance of regulation and dialogue with regulators. Yeah. Um, one thing that you said... Yeah, just, just, just to say, people will know me, and the best reward is actually when, when a member was, once told me, you're too aggressive and too direct to the regulator. I took that as a compliment. Because... <laughs> The, the regulator sucks this in and, and, and really needs to think about it. And for us to spend hours and hours to explain something, March 2020, we've got calls in that particular week of the market downturn of so many regulators. And they get an answer from us immediately. It's not like, oh, we're going to do some numbers for you and come back to you in three weeks. No. Um, short sale restrictions, all those kind of topics we discussed about, the capital requirement restrictions, we talked about which would limit um, market makers to put prices in in, in really critical times. Um, prices gets the best out of people, and that week was where you saw EPTA at its best, I think, to the regulator. Very quickly, because I'm very conscious of time, um, that this article that you see written by somebody called Jeremy Grant in the Financial Times, 
is basically out there because this shows. I, f I found it. He found it. It's not, my, it's not me self-promoting, <laughs> just to be clear. This is the moment where the, what we described earlier on about Getco and me not being aware of Getco at all in Chicago. Fast forward almost 20 years and Getco had really engaged with regulators and was now talking about what the, its uh, part of the industry was doing. And that was, I guess, what that article was, was talking about. We really are running against time, so I'm going to be very quick here. Just to, I'd like to just talk quickly about you, the person, and some of your, um, that aspect of your life. You are, um, you're, many of the people I spoke to, uh, they were quite unanimous in saying that you're very dedicated to charitable causes, and um, that comes through very much. Um, uh, and I'd like you just to talk about that a little bit, just to explain why, uh, background to that and the importance of it to your, to your life. Sure, thanks. If your partner gets diagnosed when she was 34 and ultimately passes away after nine years, the world changes um, for us as a family. Um, but again, I think like what we've seen, how can one better this? How can one prevent things? Um, so I work closely with quite a few oncologists and pathologists um, in, in the breast cancer world. Uh, of how to better the research, all phase one and phase two research, with help from people from our industry. The data analysis we do, the data engineering we do in our world with the, the terabytes of data, um, we're very fortunate. And some companies allocate people to these projects. And I'm grateful that these companies, our EPTA members, uh, market makers in general, think broadly and support charities like that. And these are research projects. Doctors get the PhDs on it. Um, and we, we made a lot of progress in, in breast cancer. And breast cancer um, and, and colon cancer and uh, pancreatic cancer are pretty close. So it has advantages to other uh, Fantastic. types. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Congratulations for that. Yeah. Grateful for the support there by the industry. Yeah. And we're going to wrap up now. And I'm going to play a very quick game of long short with Mark. Um, this is borrowed from the FT, where after we did a very big interview with the CEO, at the very end of the interview, the CEO would be, you'd fire a word or two words at the CEO, and he or she would have to respond long or short, depending on what they thought of that concept. So we're going to play long short, just for 30 seconds. Are you ready? Go for it. Yeah. High-frequency trading. Long. Crypto. Long. Terry Duffy. Short. <laughs> the London Metal Exchange. Short. Ajax Football Club. Short. PSV Eindhoven. Short. I'm not a football fan. Donald Trump. Short. <laughs> um, Stroop Waffles. Yeah, long, definitely. Okay, good. Thank you for playing long, short, Mark. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability 
or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA. All rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.